welcome to episode 253 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 23rd of October 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Faden. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. How do? Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Will, archivebox.io. The gist of it is, the end of the world is nigh. Now, this <laughs> might surprise you that I've been prepping, but... Not really. Not all the <laughs> low-fang fucking radios and stuff. <laughs> well... When the end does come, I will still be sat in my Faraday cage-protected house reading websites that I've downloaded with Archivebox. It is, as you might guess, an internet archive of your very own. It's a full open-source project. They've got a Deb. They've got a Docker image. They've got Brew. They've got Pip. They've got Pac-Man packages. They've got a whole bunch of ready-to-go images get one of these set up, and then basically start passing URLs to it. And you can download that to your local store. You can tell it how far down the tree it should follow links. So you can you know, stop at the top, or you can just go down and spider all of those links all the way down. You can pass in a downloaded HTML file if you want as well. It shoves all of that information into a SQLite database, and then it's all yours to browse at your leisure. They've even got a curl pipe to SH as well, my favourite. <laughs> oh. well, it's good that they've got that as an option for very, very lazy people. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you can archive all the malware that gets installed on your server. <laughs> yeah. So what have you used it for then? Nothing at all, because uh, <laughs> I have the internet. I love that. Yeah, I haven't actually downloaded it and got it running. I've read the instructions and I thought, yeah, that sounds like something useful. And I can think of stuff that I might need when the end does come, like Wikipedia and all of those uh, (laughs) websites about killing rabbits and uh, how to skin them and stuff like that. But I haven't quite let myself go that far yet. But it is coming. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like on your to-do list. Mm. This has been on my to-do list for ages, but I haven't got around to it yet. But the internet and the web is much less permanent than you think it is. Sometimes shit just disappears. Yeah, and we're lucky that we've got services like Internet Archive that are trying to preserve the history. One of my concerns with politics being the way it is, is like all of the revisionist stuff that is happening now, is if you point to a reference material on a website, in a paper or in a blog post or in a tweet or something and somebody comes along and changes what it says what do you do one you've got to be incredibly diligent and looking for things that change and making sure that you're not caught out and two you risk being made a fool of in public like something we all know about and it just it it would be useful to have a copy i can imagine that a lot of journalists would want to make sure that they've got an automated and up-to-date replica of any reference material they need. So I think there is a real genuine need beyond just people being paranoid. And I hadn't really thought of that until you said it, Joe. So, yeah, I think you're right. And it's not something that we should just totally rely on the Internet Archive for because they do great work, but you don't want a single point of failure, do you? And there are other archive sites out there, but something that is self-hosted means that you can have a copy of all the stuff that is important to you. This conversation has just reminded me of something I discovered a couple of weeks ago, which is the IA command published by the Internet Archive. You can download it as a binary. It's an open source project, and it's basically a command line 
interface to their API. So you can use it to query their metadata. You can use it to upload as well, but you can also use it to download files and automate the things that you need to keep on top of on the Internet Archive. There's also a UK web archive run by the British Library, which I didn't know about until I think Popey brought it up maybe a couple of weeks ago, where you can go and tell them about a UK-based website and they will add it to their archive. And then it is actually physically available in the British Library, which is quite cool. All right, Fahim, iVoyager. This is a web-based planetarium. Planetarium doesn't really sort of give the right feeling for what this is. So a lot of software like Stellarium and the stuff, you can see a planet, you can go to a moon or whatever like that. This is a bit different in the fact that it's more like the orbits of stuff. Now, if you want to try it right now, there's a section at the bottom center of the page where it starts up with like the sun and where things are, but there's a button that you can click on that says asteroids. And this is the coolest thing that I, I found about this is it can show you there's apparently a bunch of different asteroids I didn't know about. I knew we had an asteroid belt, but I didn't realize that there was like near Earth, Mars crossers, main belts, inner, middle, outer, Hildas, whatever the hell they are, Jupiter Trojans, which are apparently wooden horse shaped asteroids. I don't know. But the thing is that you can scroll around it, zoom in and out, and you can see the fact that the, the sort of cloud shape of the asteroid belt is like the pink ones, which are the near-Earth ones, I think. No, they're the Jupiter Trojans. They're out, and they're kind of in two sort of chunks, and they're quite flat, and they go quite high up from the elliptical plane and stuff. It's just, it's just really cool. The only thing that I hate about this entire thing is the fact that the mouse scroll wheel, which does the zooming, is the wrong mm. fucking way around. Yeah. And I, it is driving me mad, but... It's a fantastic thing, and you can see all the orbits. And I, I did see somebody say, try not to switch on all 48,000 or whatever it is, orbit levels, and watch your machine catch fire. But quite amazing that this is running inside a browser. Now, if you were totally lost at what Phelan was saying there, I can sum it up in seven words for you. Google Earth, but for the solar system. No. Yes, that's what it is. It You can have a 3d version of the solar system and you can move around and zoom and stuff and as you say the scroll wheel is natural scrolling or evil scrolling as i like to call it is that what it's called okay wrong scrolling is what i would have gone for but yeah yeah not when it's zooming in and out but when it's scrolling up and down a page ah, no. and they call it natural it's scrolling yes unnatural freak show yeah yeah you know what it reminds me of is um Celestia. Do you remember Celestia? It was an application that's probably 20 years old. And it was like on Linux, it was like the, it did exactly the same thing in an app. And the, and the solar system, the universe looked amazing. And just while you were talking, I've just, it, the project had been abandoned for yeah. like 10 years. And I've just Googled it while you were talking. And the project has come back to life. So I'm going to have to try it and uh, I'll report back on another discovery. It's even got poor old Pluto. Well, I was going to say, so, people who think that Pluto should be a planet, Ceres, which is a large asteroid, or I don't know what they call it, a minor planet or something, or planetoid, has a better orbit than Pluto does, because it's more circular and it's more mm. aligned with the plane. So Pluto is just full of shite, is what it is, and it can go and yeah. fuck right off. It's a charlatan <laughs> of a planet. It is. And I only discovered something recently was that I could never remember the order of planets. I could remember everything up to Mars, but then after that, I got a bit dodgy. But if you remember that the last three planets spelled the word sun, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. 
So Jupiter's obviously just before them. So there you go. I think they say Uranus these days to uh, <laughs> avoid schoolboy giggling. <laughs> well, they're missing out because they could have had a lot more people interested in astronomy, but they ruined it all. Failing, my very eager mother just served us nine pizzas. That's how you remember it. Oh, dear God. Well, <laughs> she didn't serve you pizzas. There was nothing arrived. That's what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. That's quite good. <laughs> Damn it. What's the F for? Oh, okay, you started with failing. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it took a while. <laughs> Rusty cogs. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> needs much more WD-40. <laughs> Graham, you are a monster who likes to have multi-column view in Mastodon. What is wrong with you? Is this not common? I mean, I wasn't big putting things on Twitter, but I used it a lot for consuming things, and I had to use TweetDeck. TweetDeck let you follow hashtags of things, they let you follow people's posts and their responses without following them, they let you put in searches and, and keep a search in a column. Basically, you could open up TweetDeck in a web view, it used to be an app, and get the whole status of everything. I've got an ultra-wide monitor, I suppose that helps. I just relied on it for seeing what was going on with the things I was interested in. And I think I've mentioned it in discoveries. I've been trying to find an equivalent for Mastodon and Fosterdon. Um, I think the last app I tried was called The Deck, which is really good. I hadn't appreciated that the web app actually has this feature built in in Mastodon. Why would you want to see five fucking columns of <laughs> posts at the same time? Because each column is a category of things that I'm interested in. So there's one column for synths or indie games or a hashtag or a music artist. Um, I don't want it all mashed up into a single timeline. So I have my post on the left, home notifications, and then whatever I happen to be looking at. So yours has got more than that then? I did post actually on uh, Fosterdon with a, a screenshot of mine. Yeah, I've linked to that. I usually have a lot more than that. I usually have 15 or 16 and scroll across what? them. What? Wow. Okay. I don't keep on top of everything in the timeline. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm terrible, to be honest. Sometimes it's a column that nothing else very much happens in. It might be somebody, an artist or something. But when they post something or something, a conversation related to what they post comes up, I don't miss it because it'll bubble up to the top of that column. I don't know, maybe it's just it's just me. So you can do that, and it's a really great interface, apart from adding the columns, but you just go to the advanced view from the settings page. Oh, wow. You go to settings, preferences, appearance, and then enable advanced web interface. And then when you've done that, you can basically add as many columns as you want. And whenever you log into Mastodon or Fosterdon, whatever, you get the same columns that you've set up. Okay, so I have that enabled. Why don't I see more than like you do. So if you've got the getting started thing on the uh, on the column. On the right-hand side, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. see, this is the thing. I don't notice things on this interface very well. If you go to hashtags in that, for example, the second column, yeah. and then choose one, that will appear as a column, and then there's a little settings thing at the top right of that column, click on pin. Oh, my God. Wow. And that becomes a permanent column. And then you'll always get the updates for that thing, the hashtag that you've just added. That's and genius. you can do that for searches and people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then whenever you log in again, it'll just be the same setup. You don't lose it. Wow. 
Did it work? Yes. And uh, I've had that enabled for possibly months and not noticed or not realised that it could do all that. Yeah, and it seems to be quite an old feature when I looked at it. It's been there for a few years, so I didn't know that it did that either. Wow, okay. Will, Curl supports MQTT. Who knew? This is just a little one. But yeah, you can subscribe to an MQTT topic using Curl, and you can post to an MQTT topic using Curl. Amazing. Uh, This is just a, a really handy, yet another tool in the Swiss Army knife that is Curl, Getting web stuff, yes, fine. But now you can use it with MQTT as well. Just really handy for doing those very simple, listen to a topic, see everything that's coming out of it. Really nice way of doing it. I was using uh, the Mosquito sub command, which is comes with Mosquito, and so is probably already installed on your machine. But the curl one, just kind of nice, kind of easy, really useful tool. Roger's come around to snip your internet cable to show you. Yeah, sorry, Roger. After, yeah, hmm. I, I do feel a bit guilty about that, Roger. Sorry. But it's just, it's quite handy. Well, I hate to be negative, especially about Firefox. But <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> well, I use Chrome on Android. Boo. And then the other morning, I woke up and all my tabs had just disappeared. They're just fucking gone. Like a fart in the wind. That must be your phone, because I've had so many tabs for so long, and I don't have any issue. No, this was Chrome on Android. Oh, Chrome, right. Okay, sorry. Yes, and so that made me think, right, it's about bloody time I tried Firefox again. And so I did. And uh, I tried it, and I hadn't set it as default, but I was trying to use it. I was making an effort to use it. And then I'm doing something, cooking or whatever, and my phone makes a noise, and it was a notification saying, hey, set me as your default browser. And uh, you get zero chances to spam my notifications. And so it was fucking uninstalled. And uh, I know people are going to say, oh, you can control your notifications. No, sometimes I want to have notifications from my browser when I've downloaded an image or whatever. I want to know that it's up there. My notifications on Android are sacred. I keep them empty at all times. And I sometimes leave stuff in there to just annoy me into dealing with something. And I don't understand these. Some people post screenshots and they've got a thousand fucking notifications that they don't clear. That, I don't understand that mindset. And so presumably it was people with that mindset that decided it was a good idea to have Firefox spam your notifications. And I complained about it on on Mastodon and people said, oh, well, people need to know to set it as default, otherwise they're not going to use it and, and whatnot. But... No fucking wonder no one uses it when they pull shit like this, quite frankly. Fail him. Retort. Uh, Yeah, I I have a bit of an issue with their notifications too and the fact that I don't know where some of the notifications come from because I used Mastodon, Discord. What's that other one that we use? Matrix? Yeah. Yeah, Matrix. And oftentimes, you know, I've used the same username in all of them, so it says... Such and such account has a notification. I'm like, cool. Where? Where is this notification? And I have to dig for it and I can't find it. Well, on the desktop or on Android? Well, Firefox pops it on the desktop, which I then get. I mean, I don't get notifications on my mobile one at all. I, I don't know whether I've turned it off or what I've done, but I keep that very limited. Like, I've got loads of tabs open and it's fine, but I just find Firefox notifications on the desktop. They're really annoying because they're, they could just add the site name. That'd be the simplest thing they could do. And at least you would know or stand some chance of knowing where it came from. But what's really annoying is that I was getting on quite well with it. And I was 
you know, thinking about seriously making the change. But then the reason I uninstalled it last time was the same thing. They spam my notifications and I just will not have that. I don't get that at all. Weird. I'm with you, Joe. My notifications are not a mechanism for you to push your adverts to me. And as soon as you do do that, then the app is gone or the notifications are off. So I, I have absolute sympathy with you here, Joe. I would have done the same thing. Failing. Password thing. Working with clients, oftentimes you have to, at some point, transfer a password to get somewhere or, you know, a key or whatever. But, you know, usually there's going to be a password involved. It, you may have a third party and control the actual server, so you don't have keys there anyway. And a few clients have used uh, some internet-based ones. Are like, And you always think, oh, Jesus, which is even better? Is it better to send it to me via SMS or some website I'm not in control of? I don't know. And then you told me you need Amulet's password thingy. And I went, what? And yeah, so Amulet has a very cool idea of essentially this. It's your own self-hosted password generation transfer one-time password thingy and uh yeah that's exactly what it is nice and simple and uh very very good and i will be very much installing this i've been away for work so i didn't get a chance to install it yet but yeah it's very straightforward to set up and um very good he needs a name for it though he said to me he does i'd say shibboleth but that's actually a product (laughs) (laughs) I did come up with a couple and Googled them and know that's something else and that's something else. So yeah, it's very hard to name things. This is Amelith from Linux Downtime, by the way. And uh, it seems like a very simple way to solve it that doesn't involve having to make a GPG file and hint at what the password is or send the password a different way or whatever. That's fine if you're dealing with people who even know that is, but like they could be just network admins or working at a university or something and they're like, what? And you're like, oh God, I'll post it to you in a letter. (laughs) Yeah, I tried to send someone a GPG file the other day and uh, I know that they're sort of somewhat into Linux but they mostly use Windows. And uh, he says to me, can I just open this with 7-zip or what? I'm like, no, you know, you're going to need Linux. For-. Well, there's probably a way in Windows, I'm sure. But uh, just, you know, I told him, look, GPG, the file, and then this is the password. But no, normal people don't want to deal with that bullshit. So uh, something like password thing is the solution. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the late night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Graham, it's audio time again. Cardinal, a fork of VCV rack. Yeah, so hopefully I won't go on too long about this, but I've talked about VCV rack before. It's 
one of the best open source audio synth projects. It's modular synths, but in a visual way. Yeah, that's right. So Eurorack is a, a physical format for small, tiny little synthesizers and audio processing things and controllers. Yeah, you make a synth out of components, don't you? Like you have different like LFOs going into filters, going into all different ways of connecting stuff. And we've talked about Reason before, which is the, you know, connecting rack mount gear virtually. And this is sort of the modular synth equivalent of it, but open source. But there's been some politics there, is my understanding. That's exactly right, yeah. Right, and that's why there's a fork of it. Well, VCV rack became very successful, became hugely popular, but it, the project, it was open source, it is open source. There's a single custodian to this, and they've, the project has tried to become more commercial um, by offering modules on a subscription or f- modules that are maybe not open source. And that was not in the spirit necessarily of how people wanted to use something like this, where a lot of those modules are based on real modules from the real world and sometimes even use the real world firmware in the virtual equivalents because a lot of them are open source as well. What? <laughs> yeah. There, yeah, some amazing, amazing examples of Eurorack modules using open source firmware. That's crazy. And they've been virtually recreated in VCVRack. I spent a couple of hours in VCVRack once, and I managed to get sort of... And then you see what people have made with it, and it's just mm. unbelievable. The patience these people must have, or I don't know, maybe I just didn't take enough time to learn it, but it is amazing. Yeah, and the physical side of it is very expensive. These modules are kind of, well, they'll, they'll call them boutique and they'll be 100 or 200 euros. VCV rack, it's all free. All of this stuff is free and you can run it on your machine and you don't need any physical space to do it. So Cardinal, is it's not like an angry fork of the project. It's a copy of the project at a certain point, but adds a load of new features and puts open source development at the heart of the whole project. So it bundles all of the plugins. They're not add-ons. They're not compiled as add-ons. There's over a thousand now different modules that are part of Cardinal. One of the problems with VCV Rack was you couldn't use it as a plugin because the developer wanted the plugin to be a commercial project. So as a plugin, you can use it inside your own door, for example, inside Arda. Cardinal has supports Clap. It supports VST. It supports LV2, and it supports LV2 and interconnecting between LV2 plugins, which is a, a feature specific to LV2. So it's a big upgrade if you care about open source on VCV Rack and just as powerful. It sounds to me like the LibreOffice to VCV Rack's OpenOffice. Yeah, I think hopefully, I mean, I, I'm all for open source and seeing the whole thing carrying on developing in a flourishing open source community. So yeah, I hope so. Cardinal, I suppose, has some of the naming problems <laughs> associated with LibreOffice that VCV Rack does say what it does, but um, hopefully. Yeah, Cardinal's better than VCV Rack, though. Cardinal kind of sounds good. Yeah, but are they going to get the mind chat? I would imagine that music tech nerds are going to be more on it. This is not something that normal people use, like OpenOffice. Normal <laughs> people use spreadsheets and docs, whereas the only kind of person who's going to do this is someone who's like a bit of a nerd anyway. So hopefully you're not going to have that same problem then. What was that publication that you talked about before, Graham, that actually exists by audio nerds and it still exists properly? 
oh, you talked about it before. Maybe you need to write an article for them about Cardinal. There you go. Yeah, it's the Electronic Sound magazine. Yeah. It's uh, kickstarted and still doing really well. Yeah. You'll reach all 10 of them by that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the fork actually happened, I think, a couple of years ago. So the project's doing really well and really seems to be flourishing. So it's nice to talk about it like a little time after the the fact. Yeah, now it's properly established Mm. and doing well. Mm. Because you never know with a fork, do you? It could be a bit of a wet fart sometimes. No, and we had this with Audacity. And tenacity, I think, is still trying, but this this has really worked, I think, in continuing the momentum that was behind the open source modules of the original project and giving them a place to put their efforts and feel good about it. Yeah. So again, it's more like LibreOffice and less like Glimpse. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say that as well. <laughs> Failing, what is Wi-Fi QR code format? So I have a horrific Wi-Fi password that I was given out to by my family on multiple occasions every time one has to retype it back in because I think it's 63 ASCII characters, uh, which is the max you can have. And, uh, you know, is it an uppercase I or a lowercase L and it's a shit font? Who knows? So uh, it was always a case of, I fucking hate you. I got sent that quite a lot. So I thought... Well, I can generate a QR code. And I had one for a long time, stuck on a notice board under a sheet of paper. You could quickly copy and paste that into your clipboard. I was away last week and one of my pals said, oh, here's the Wi-Fi and it's on this. And I clicked it and then it automatically generated the Wi-Fi config. So it had like what the home network was called and the password and stuff. And it automatically configured it. I went, how did you do that? And he went, I don't know. So then I said, there has to be a format for that. And then, yes, there in fact is a format for that, which is apparently actually not quite that new, but it's a fairly simple text string. And I've linked to a page on how you can generate your own with your own network password with using the QR and code tool, which is really handy. I use that all the time for loads of projects like WireGuard configs and stuff like that. It's very handy to run them through that. So you can just hand somebody a QR code that they can get their config done that way but this is a format that android knows about probably ios can as well i don't know and once you click on that it then automatically configures the network and it knows what the access point is and all that and then you don't have to worry about it you don't have to go right now i have it on my clipboard can i paste it oh no the wankers have now disabled the paste into that field because they love doing shit like that let's do some feedback then richard says i thought i would share a nice simple pdf editor called pdf arranger It does most of the things I need to do to a PDF, like adding, removing, and moving pages, plus a few frills like booklet printing. Yeah, that looks really good. I still would love to find some simple PDF reader that allows you to fill in fields for forms you've given. I don't know why that's so difficult. I know Ocular sometimes does it. I was going to say, Graham. (laughs) (laughs) I've just had some this week from the school and found it really in the end just ended up printing it and scanning which is like crazy yeah i know done that too yeah i remember having a windows 7 partition literally just for that because i had to do a lot of pdf form filling at the time for my job and um it was just a nightmare i'd either have to in linux print it out fill it in scan it and i did that a few times this this is just madness i can't do that and so i ended up just using the official adobe one Mm. which worked perfectly obviously so um It is nice when you find one in Linux, but it generally sort of isn't going to work 100% of the time, is it? There's always going to be that one little thing that doesn't quite work and requires you to just print it out, fill it in, scan it, and uh, 
Yeah, so I will have to check this one out, though. It's got to be the weirdest standard PDF. It really is. It's like open, but not. Yeah, exactly. I just don't, don't understand it. Bloody Adobe. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when, who knows, probably some news or something. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>